You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply and logistics industry's leading source of insight. Our sponsor, Ascent, elevates the world of logistics through the passion of its 1,000-plus experts and their innovative solutions. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. What next for box shipping and trade? And, as it says on the tin, today we've got shippers, analysts, economists, and a very senior container line executive to shed some light on this for you. I'm joined by Jake Phipps, CEO of global manufacturer Phipps International, Project 44's Josh Brazil, Senator Chief Analyst Peter Sand, Nomura's Head of Global Macro Research Rob Subaraman, and Lars Mikkel Jensen, Head of Global Ocean Network at Maersk. The lockdown in China is reducing the number of, honestly, semi-produced products that normally go from Shanghai to Southeast Asia. If that flow is not there, then maybe you can say we'll get a Southeast Asia impact later. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar Podcast. Welcome back, one and all. Now, today, we're going to do things slightly differently because the world is in rather a peculiar place right now, certainly in terms of forecasting trade flows and prices. Now, just a couple of quick announcements before we get cracking. If you weren't aware, this podcast and our back catalogue is available on all major podcast platforms as well as on the lodestar.com for free. And if you happen to think seafarers deserve a bit more support for keeping our industry moving during COVID lockdowns and for the fact that so many were unable to return home because of the patchwork of COVID vaccine rules and, and travel restrictions and the failure to recognise them as key workers, in their aid, I'm walking 200 miles sea to sea in June. And this is in support of seafarer charity ISWAN, which is the International Seafarers Welfare and Assistance Network. It's a UK-based, fully regulated and registered charity. They run amazing helplines for seafarers. They also provide direct financial grants directly to seafarers and their families caught up in the war in Ukraine. Regular listeners to the Lodestar podcast will will know that we, we did speak to one of those seafarers caught up in war in the Black Sea, Adrian Battalion, whose vessel was attacked by the Russian Navy back at the start of the conflict. And we heard how horrific that was for him and his colleagues. So uh, please do help if you can. You can really help a lot with a very small amount. I'll be paying all my own costs, so anything you give goes direct to those that need it. Now, when I signed up for this, what I wasn't told by my old mate Norma Long when, I, when he asked me if I fancied it, is that not only is it 200 miles, but we'll also be climbing over 9,000 metres in the 10 days. That's over 30,000 feet, apparently. That's higher than Everest, or for those that know their Welsh mountains, it's about eight or nine Snowdens. Now, my longest walk in the last 10 years was probably about three miles, so um, it's going to be interesting, I think might be the word. I'll be updating our progress on my Twitter handle, which is MikeKing121, and on my LinkedIn, which is pretty easy to find. The website for donations is www.justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash 200 miles C to C. Any support, personal or corporate, would be much appreciated. If you want to Contact me directly about this or anything else. My email is mikeking121 at gmail.com. And now, back to the future, so to speak, as that is more or less what we're exploring today as we look about where trade is now and where it's going to go as we look ahead. And there's a lot going on. And where to start? Well, unless you've been hiding under a rock, you'll know that Chinese health policy, with a dash of domestic politics thrown into the mix, is impacting all your supply chains. Today, Shanghai, China's largest city, reported 27,000 new COVID cases. That is the highest single-day total reported anywhere in China at any point during the pandemic. The city's hard 
lockdown is affecting global supply chains. Problems in the Chinese supply chain will affect the supply of the goods in the U.S. and therefore drive up the price of a range of products. That's why economists predict that inflation in the U.S. will further intensify. The lockdown situation in China is not only a threat to the Chinese economy, but the world economy as well, very much including the U.K. Today, we'll be hearing a wide range of views on how events in China are rippling around the world. We've got analysts, economists and container line executives coming up. But let's hear first from a beneficial cargo owner. China's been a really big issue. It's, it's five weeks now going on, you know, six for delays in province to province. They keep putting in new shutdowns on new cities. The COVID policy there is just extremely strict and um, causing massive delays. And we're going to start feeling it on a worldwide scale uh, in a major way because you know, a lot of the consumer products here to the U.S. and all around Europe, around the world, all come from China. That was Jake Phipps, CEO of global manufacturer Phipps International, which has 18 manufacturing sites around the world, including a number in China. He told me COVID lockdowns weren't just impacting exports of finished goods, they were also causing shortages of inputs for manufacturers globally. The raw materials that they make that other manufacturers around the world need for their productions, be it in Europe or South America or other parts of Asia, aren't able to get their materials either to be able to finish their productions. So it, it's a, a daisy chain of issues that's happening. So it's affecting factory productions all over the world. FIP said one of the big challenges is getting any sort of firm and definite information out of China. It's constantly changing province to province. So it looks like they're gonna release some of the northern provinces here soon, which is like Hanzhou, Ningbo, you know, Shanghai. But now they're putting lockdowns and talking about lockdowns in Shenzhen, Guangzhou, and the southern provinces, which there's a ton of manufacturing that goes on all throughout the whole eastern seaboard and, and southern seaboard. So it looks like it might just move to another location. And believe it or not, the Chinese factory operations in the South, some of the raw materials are made for the North. And in the North, some of the raw materials are made for the South factories. So it doesn't really help depending on what you're producing. Hopefully, I think they're going to release Shanghai here soon, but they keep telling me my factories and producers, five days, five days, five days. And it's like every five days, the government says, nope, five more. And so if they have closed loop scenarios in factories, then some of them are still able to produce. What I mean by closed loop is uh, the fact that workers don't ever leave the factory at all, right? They don't go into society, they stay at the factory and they work. And so there is some operations that are happening, but then there's no truckers to drive the trucks to move it around. So what's the point, right? Jake, can you tell me what this and other disruptions are doing to transit times into the U.S., for example? Yeah, transit time has, has went from, if you go back two years ago, you know, I was delivering to the West Coast in, in California and, and really two and a half weeks, two weeks getting containers there. It turns now into 45 days. East Coast, we were getting things there in 28 days. It's now 60. So the, the transit times have gotten really backed up. And along with poor transit times, we've got port congestion. So the port congestion is a major issue at all the ports here in the United States because of infrastructure issues. We, we can't handle the amount of uh, pent up demand from uh, COVID lockdown here and everyone ordering online. The internet has uh, jumped probably 10 or 15 years ahead of time without the infrastructure to handle it. And presumably, Jake, those longer transit times, higher freight rates and all these delays mean higher costs for you, which presumably you pass on. Yeah, we have to pass on cost. I used to price things delivered from anywhere around the world. I've had to separate shipping now and put a line on them in there for an estimated shipping cost based on that time, that week of when the order's placed. And then we have to revisit it, you know, 60, 90, 120 days later when the manufacturing process is done and we're ready to ship again. And if it uh, goes down, I, I let the customer enjoy the, the downside. If it goes up, they uh, don't enjoy the price going up. But we have no, you know, I can't take on this cost, right? Just like most companies can't. Jake Phipps, thanks for joining me today on uh, the Lodestar podcast. Thanks, bud. Take care. That was uh, some insight there into how this mix and match of logistics challenges in Asia and beyond are impacting manufacturers. 
But before we hear what one container line, Maersk, is doing to address some of these issues and what we can expect later this year, let's look at some numbers. And to do that, let me welcome to the Lodestar podcast once more. It's the one and only Zenitor Chief Analyst, Peter Sand. Hello, Peter. Hello, the one and only Mike King. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good, Peter. Yes, into the Champions League final here. So we're very happy over in uh, this little part of Liverpool in London. Congrats. <laughs> Peter, uh, I'm slightly sidetracked by the football there, but let me come on back onto shipping. Can you please explain for our listeners how the major east-west spot and contract rates from Asia into Europe and the US have been evolving over the past two months of these lockdowns and war in Europe, etc.? Yeah, very much so. And I would love to, uh, to, to add to, uh, to what is already available on lodestar.com, uh, a website, our ticker, focusing on, on, on the spot rates, the Sineta XSI, which is already, let's say, available to you guys. But let me just start off uh, with the, um, uh, the main hall uh, into to Europe, uh, out of the uh, Far East, and the spot market, which, uh, which basically, uh, say, have delivered over the past couple of uh, a month, just a little bit like Man City did last night, right? Uh, they're down 20% on uh, the, the spot development since, well, the uh, uh, attack on Ukraine and also the uh, subsequent uh, lockdowns in Shanghai. So down from 14,000 to, to 11,000 on the spot right now for forage to Europe, whereas the long-term contract market is up by 10%. So we're narrowing that gap between spot and, and long-term. And it seems to be a theme right now as, as markets to some extent are... And let me put this very carefully because they are not normalizing in the way that you would expect, okay, things to be like they were pre-pandemic, but at least we are now seeing a very say, sharply narrowed gap between long-term contract rates and spot rates on many of the halls. Let me just get back to that shortly, but suddenly long-term contract rates are up from forest to Europe to $10,000 per day right now. So the spot market, if we go uh, further into the North American part of the uh, main halls and the West Coast that uh, that is certainly seeing congestion uh, coming down and, and also freight rates to some extent, very much a flat development still on that, say the short Trans-Pacific uh, trade lane right now trading around $9,300 down from two months ago around $9,500. So it's a little bit of a waiting game in many ways for the shippers and carriers on the US uh, West Coast as they of course all anticipate whatever will be around when labor negotiations starts one week from now on 12 May, right? Long-term rates on that is also reacting positively to the uncertainty because it's, it's risk management, which is the name of the game. All shippers would like to see stronger and more resilient supply chains, and they are ready to pay up for that by, by getting into closer contracts and deal with the carriers. So we see long-term contract rates literally, literally climbing from 7,000 to 9,000 on the uh, Far East to a U.S. West Coast uh, right now. And on the East Coast, well, there you have basically a parity between uh, spot and the long-term market. And it, it is as high as $12,500 per box uh, right now. That's what we see. We have basically seen the spot market being flat since the turn of the year, whereas the long-term contract markets into the U.S. East Coast have jumped by 25%. So it's all the way up there now. Very, very strong development during uh, the month of April, where literally all American shippers, those that have not already done so, decided, okay, we will bring our goods in via U.S. East Coast and avoid whatever hassle, disruption will come around in U.S. West Coast. So better safe than sorry. Uh, that's how we see the update uh, right now on the main halls, uh, Mike. Can I just turn to... China. Now, you mentioned some of those spot rates have come off slightly. Just looking at that, how that's playing out from the air cargo, where it's very much about what's going on in China. The, the TAC indices have mostly been soft at the start of May, although the guys over at TAC tell me that some of the data points are a bit sparser than normal, especially in Shanghai, where sources say carriers, after a bit of a dramatic pull down of capacity recently, are slowly coming back to market. In Hong Kong, we've got a the closed loop system there for easing quarantine restrictions on air crew is helping to improve a bit of activity for the likes of Cathay Pacific, but so much is reliant on the operational impediments of these COVID policies, China's strict zero COVID policy. These lockdowns, Peter, it's not just about exports on these main lanes, is it, that we've just been talking about. Some of these manufacturers are finding it hard to get 
inputs into China. Is this impacting the intra-Asia trade? What we have been seeing all along here at Sonetta is that the intra-Asian market, the world's biggest container market, have, have been mostly impacted. So in, in many ways, the ripple effect from, uh, from those clocking up pipelines intra-Asia is likely to hit us, of course, in Europe and, and North America in a, in a few months. So those infamous ripple effects that we talk about constantly will come into play quite clearly once hopefully, fingers crossed, all going well, that those, uh, say, lockdowns will once again clear, the obstacles will uh, become uh, smaller, will eventually completely disappear. But the whole, say, system of getting semi-finished goods, getting raw materials moved, not only for, for the apparel business, very much so, but also for, for the automotive industry, they are two sectors being specifically hard hit by the lack of, say, intra-Asian mobility also during times of, of closed downs in the main port of them all. I mean, Shanghai is the, the, the main spider within the cobweb. So whenever things plug up around there, it basically freezes also intra-Asia as well as out of Asia. So I think I'm afraid to say that the worst is yet to come in terms of, uh, of, of lower volumes due to that, say, clocked up pipelines. But fingers crossed, there will still be, say, goods to move very shortly also when the Chinese lockdowns eventually also, are, uh, say, uh, allow truck drivers to move around more freely intra-China and, of course, allow workers to, uh, to, to get to the factories, get those uh, manufactured goods done, and in the end also to the terminals and shipped out of the Far Eastern region. Peter, just turning back to the U.S., capacity from Asia into the U.S. East Coast has increased quite substantially, 28.1% over the last year, compared to 20.5% on the Asia-US West Coast. What's going on here? I think what's going on is really that all the ports on the US uh, Gulf Coast and East Coast are setting records uh, right now every month, literally. In the month of March, with the most recent data from Houston, for instance, that was a record high import amount. So we really literally see a lot of shippers circumventing, bringing goods into other parts, still shying away from Canada and Mexico imports. But if we narrow it down to the U.S. Gulf Coast that normally see around 5% of, of Far Eastern imports getting in there, we're all the way up to seven now. And that's taken out of the imports from the U.S. West Coast. And if we move all the way to the U.S. East Coast, normally 32% of uh, Far Eastern imports uh, get there. It's now exceeding 35%. Let me bring in here for some uh, additional insight into those numbers and what's going on. It's Josh Brazil, who's the Vice President for Supply Chain Insights at Project 44. Hello, Josh. Hi, Mike. Great to be here. Thanks. Josh, we've been seeing a switch of cargo and shipping capacity to the U.S. East Coast. What are you seeing in terms of your data for the, the East Coast versus those U.S. West Coast ports? Well, um, really... The story of Q1 here, we've been following this really since the peak shopping season, at which we saw the big congestion occur at the end of 2021. There's been really overall great improvement, especially on the West Coast. So when you're looking at the ports like Long Beach and in Los Angeles, of course, their vessel congestion has improved greatly. There used to be over 100 vessels you know, anchored offshore waiting for berthing slots. And they're down to a normal amount at this point, about four vessels. We're guessing that there's probably a bit of a lull due to the Shanghai lockdown reducing some of those exports. So they've probably been able to benefit from that. At the same time, we also saw in Q1 a peak of vessels rerouting uh, to the East Coast, especially to the port of uh, Charleston and a bit at the port of Savannah. But that also reached a peak in February. So Charleston is also improving a lot right now. So they had a peak of over 20 vessels, I think, in February, and they're now down to just about eight vessels today. But with that said, we're also seeing a slight uptake in, in the ports of Norfolk and, and New York. So there seems to be a bit of vessel congestion appearing in, in those regions as well. Basically what's happening in the U.S. is you're, you're getting this lack of intermodal uh, capacity, you know, lack of chassis, lack of truck drivers, lack of uh, space to warehouse space to store, store all the equipment. So you know, really, really, that's kind of the, the, the main bottleneck in the U.S. at this point. You mentioned those intermodal failings in the U.S. I mean, how's that affecting U.S. exports, particularly agricultural exports? Right. So agricultural exports are really taking a beating right now. We're looking at essentially for every four containers that are going out to Asia, 
three of them are empty at this point. So just one of them is, you, you know, getting loaded. Why is that? So currently, you know, the U.S. Uh, imports rates for, from Asian loading ports far outweigh those of U.S. exports. You look at the, just the basic economics of it. If you have a vessel or a container where you can get $8,000 for an import into the U.S., but an export, you get only $1,000. What's happening is the carriers are, of course, you know, following the money and rushing those, those empty containers back to Asia to, to take advantage of that, of that route. But, you know, it's a combination of other factors, you know, inland factors, equipment shortages, canceled bookings, inadequate receiving windows. So it's a combination of factors, but it, it is a big problem. And the FMC is looking into it right now. There was just a congressional meeting uh, a couple of days ago where they're looking into, it, it's called an audit, and they're looking into how shipping lines can basically improve access to service and offerings on that. I imagine from the shipping line point of view, they would say, well, they could pay more. Uh, but until those rates on the on the front hall into the U.S. come down, I guess that's going to be the economic dilemma facing those exporters. And a lot of those agricultural exports, of course, you know, they're not high value products compared to what they're importing. So, you know, you can see where the economics drive that particular trade. Now, if we can just go back to China, Josh, what are you seeing in your numbers for China, those ports with these COVID lockdowns that we've been discussing here on the Lodestar podcast? What happened is basically the bottlenecks are, were happening at before the containers get to the port. So the lack of truckers, the lack of ability to even get in the port meant the exports were not getting out in the first place. So interestingly, in our data, what we're seeing is that those dwell times for exports did not increase at all. And in fact, there wasn't much vessel congestion there anyway. Vessels did start to reroute to Ningbo at about mid-April, but not too much. So essentially that bottleneck was really an inland capacity issue, getting containers to the port in the first place. But, you know, if we look at this lockdown compared to last year's lockdown in Yantian, which happened in June, 2021, that was actually much more impactful. Why? Why was that impactful? Because timing. So first we look at the timing that happened in June, 2021, which is just before peak season. So that timing before peak season really kind of caused kind of a hair trigger event where shippers wanted to quickly get their goods in and maybe started or over ordering supplies from there, which added to the um, already peak, you know, demand at that time. Secondly, you had Typhoon Kompasu hit Shenzhen in the region in October, just shortly after that, which shut the port down again. And so you had two close closures at the port of Yantian. Whereas this port was not closed at all. Shanghai did not close down during this lockdown. So they were able to keep it open with kind of a closed loop system. Workers were able to, you know, continue getting shipments out. So what we saw happen in June, 2021 is these transshipments also peaked. Transshipments is a big component of this for delays coming out of China. So at Yantian, those transshipments peaked at up to 17 days of dwell times in Yantian in June, 2021, they're now at seven days. So there's been improvement, but we're still seeing high transshipment dwell times and increases in, in transshipment rollover rates. So that's going to be key to watch for shippers moving ahead. If you have transshipment ports, keep an eye on those. And, you know, it's going to be a matter of getting the sailing schedules back on track. Sailing schedules have notoriously been underperforming and we'll have to see how that, that goes in the, in the months ahead. That's a very good point. You make that comparison to Yan Chan and, and how it's a very different challenge for everyone in the, the supply chain ecosystem. And I'll be raising that with Lars Mikael Jensen, head of Global Ocean Network at Maersk, a little bit later in this podcast. Now, one of the other reasons that there's, the lines are facing so many challenges is there's quite lengthy delays at quite a few ports in Europe, very similar to the US, in fact. What's the situation there according to your data in terms of, terms of dwell times for Northern Europe? Well, for what we're, what we're seeing is that export containers are being stuck, especially at ports like Bremerhaven. And it appears that there's probably lack of empty containers as well. Going back, uh, we also had vessel delays increasing coming from China, increasing really since November, 2021. So that's gone from November, 2021, you had a average vessel delay of four days. And now that's an average vessel delay of 12 days in March. 
So again, those transshipments, Rotterdam is a big transshipment port. You have the schedule integrity uh, issues that are being faced there. Those are causing lots of delays at European ports as well. Josh Brazil, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. At Ascent, we enhance your business by keeping the global supply chain moving. Whether you are a Fortune 500 company or a small business, our logistics experts simplify your most complicated freight challenges. Let us move for you today. Okay, Peter, let's turn to demand. Surely I'm going to have a chat with Rob Subaraman, head of global macro research and co-head of global markets research at Nomura. But first to you, the macroeconomic fallout of lockdowns in China is proving significant with PMI data for exports, manufacturing, delivery times all lurching into negative territory. I'm going to talk to Rob about the leading index for Asia X Japan, which has plunged as well. We're also seeing GDP downgrades um, and higher inflation in, in Europe and North America. How is this demand element of the ocean supply chain equation adding up for you at the moment? How are you looking at that as Zenita? Where are the shippers mainly located and what drives also freight rates up and down on the, uh, the main poles? And that's in Europe and that's in U.S. Actually, I mean, the, the headwind in, in Europe that we see from, uh, from the uh, outbreak of war in Ukraine, that is super negative. We have really little seen also the um, most recent update also from, from IMF quite sharply also cutting what could be, say, a pretty dull year in terms of economic activity in Europe. And again, of course, it's the one thing that brings it all down when energy prices rise sharply, when we see inflation coming up. That is when people uh, basically get sharply reduced purchasing power. And getting back to North America and the strength in the American economy, we saw uh, GDP for the first quarter being down by 1.4% on, on an annualized basis. But behind that number and, and looking more into details of the U.S. retail sales, I mean, they were up in March year on year, but at a inflation rate of 11%. I mean, if you deflate those two numbers, uh, retail sales are down. Uh, so there's still a lot of demand out there in real money values, but in terms of volumes and in terms of shipments, there is certainly an easing and uh, it's, it's coming down slowly. It's coming down gradually. And it all say unwinds in the end, uh, the strained global supply chains. So there's positive things to take away from all of the headwind that we get from macroeconomics right now and geopolitics, but there's, I guess, still more, say, worries uh, ahead that we should consider. It's not all good when, when things turn sour. We've heard for the last two years, I mean, obviously shippers, a lot of forwarders as well, have not been happy with these freight rates, but then no one's also happy when demand softens substantially, which is a possibility as we think about these headwinds, as you just mentioned. Exactly. I'm trying to find a positive here. Are these headwinds giving carriers a chance to get schedules back on track and get customers getting a service they're happier with, especially as we hit the peak season, assuming you think we have one? Yeah, you hit on at least one of the, the positive uh, side effects here, uh, data from Sea Intelligence that we also feature on our app uh, at Sonetta. Uh, we have seen schedule reliability coming up uh, in February as well as March, and we have seen average delays on a global scale come down. But without doubt, uh, when we get the numbers from April, when we get the numbers from May, they will turn sour again. So having disruptions in the main export area is devastating to schedule reliability, uh, even though, of course, depending on the methodology behind that, there are plenty of details to take into consideration here. But of course, when you take ships out of, uh, of, of circulation in order to uh, at least on paper improve uh, the schedule reliability here, is still showing that what we get in terms of, say, positive development for the average delays right now, it will get back with a vengeance at some point in time. I don't see this lockdown in China as the blessing that we have all hoped for. I would rather see much improved schedule reliability benefiting all uh, shippers around the world without the disruptions in China. So, so I will definitely uh, be watching uh, out for that development once China reopens and once uh, hopefully all the obstacles get cleared and we will get to see, say, a real improvement to global schedule reliability that will also, in the end, bring down those record high freight rates because there is 
it's not a one-to-one -one comparison here, but there is certainly some sort of development. If we narrow it down to the Far East, to Europe trade lane, uh, one of the uh, routes that have seen the most positive impact on the schedule reliability recently, we have also seen that drop of 20% in spot rates that we talked about just before. So there is some positives to take away from this, but I think we need uh, a bit more patience, uh, a couple of more months where we get to the other side of, uh, of the Chinese lockdown, potentially also boosted by the seasonal, seasonally strong Q3. Fingers crossed again, if that will uh, really boost, uh, boost say, volumes and, uh, and demand. But it's looking, it's looking good still. But of course, it's not, it's not all dandy and all nice. Peace, San. Thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast once more. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'd like to welcome to the Lodestar podcast, Rob Subaraman, who's the head of global macro research and co-head of global markets research at Nomura. Hello, Rob, and welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Great to be here, Mike. It's my first time. Rob, thanks for coming on. Right. So Nomura produces the Nelly, which I'll just simplify this quickly, but if you want to go into more detail, please do. The Nelly is a, a, a proprietary leading index of Asia's aggregate exports, excluding Japan, which is made up of eight forward-looking components and has a three-month lead time. And it's particularly interesting because it provides a bellwether for what's going on with global trade, particularly out in those export hubs in Asia. Now, in April, it plunged 3.8 points, which was the largest drop since June 2020 at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you explain to our listeners what this is telling us about the export environment in Asia right now? Yes. Yeah, so, Mike, I think you summarized it well. Our leading index, or Nelly for short, is signaling is it's sending out pretty ominous signals right now so it's it's dropped sharply as you said the latest reading lowest since middle of 2020 when we were at the height of the pandemic and it's really signaling that asian exports in the next three months could weaken quite sharply and that's in line with some of our forecasts so for china for instance the biggest economy in the region second biggest in the world we think export growth is going to slow down to 0% uh, from double digits in March. So in April, we have zero. It could possibly be even negative. And we, we think this is, Nelly is kind of picking this up. What's driving it? It's, it's, it's a few things. So one is clearly China with the zero COVID strategy, the lockdowns, supply, logistics, transportation, ports, all this is getting clogged up. And so, you know, a lot of Asian production, it's a very integrated network, right? It's a very sophisticated value chain where, you know, electronic and goods, the, the, the chips and the know-how can be in Singapore or Taiwan. It gets shipped to the Philippines or Thailand where it gets assembled a bit. But a lot of the finished assembly is done in China and the finished products are sent out from China. So China is the integral and, and the supply chain problem there, I think, with lockdowns is serious. And then there's, there's a few other things. I would say the cost of living crisis in the West, particularly Europe, is potentially starting to weaken demand. We have tightening monetary fiscal policies. And then the final one I would say is this rotation of household spending, right? So during the pandemic, everyone wanted to fill their homes with new furniture, get new computers to work from home and all this stuff, that kind of is, we think, starting to fade. And instead, there's huge pent-up demand for services to go flying again. And the thing for Asia is we don't export much services. We're into the exporting of goods. So even though US, Europe, GDP in aggregate may be okay, the composition is important. And we think that weakening demand for goods, the rotation from goods to services is not going to be good for Asian exports as well. Is there any other elements to that demand? Uh, I think in part of your analysis, I saw there was a mention of a slowdown in semiconductor demand. That might be the sign of the beginnings of a, a slowdown in the tech cycle. Is that correct? Yeah, you're right, Mike. Semiconductors, which is one of the leading indicators in Nelly. So it, actually it's 
North American companies global demand for equipment to make semiconductors. So it's a leading indicator. It's how much they need to invest. That's actually starting to cool down a bit. Uh, and that makes us feel that maybe the very strong semiconductor upcycle is starting to turn down. And that's very important for, for Asia as well in, in the exports. A big chunk is electronics. But overall, you know, I would say, Mike, that um, Nelly turning down, it's not just important about the outlook for Asian exports. You have to remember that Asia, led by China, but there's many other countries, Korea, Taiwan, Japan, Malaysia, many of these countries are uh, world leaders in manufacturing. So it is the workshop for the world. And so if we're starting to see this workshop of the world starting to cool down, it's kind of a harbinger that global growth could be starting to slow down. Just going back to the supply demand element of this, you mentioned that there's demand is slowing. Does some of these things look very different if China's COVID strategy changes, if some of those PMI numbers start improving slightly, if the delivery times, are, if the, the logistics system starts working better in China, does this equation change or is it, are you still very much focused on the demand element of this from Europe and North America? The, the, the shorter answer, it's both. I think we have both happening right now. So I think probably led by Europe, demand is coming under some pressure. That's the cost of living crisis. Yeah, that, it, it, in China, it's probably both. You have weaker demand from the property market downturn, but you also have this man-made lockdowns, which is constraining s supply. So I, I think it's both. And it, it is, you know, if, if the lockdowns were to ease in a big way, that would provide some support for Asian exports because there's a lot that's kind of clogged up at the moment. But our view is that's not going to happen. We feel that politically in Beijing, the view is the risk of a health crisis is bigger than the risk of an economic crisis. So they are going to stick pretty resolutely to lockdowns until they're really confident that they've kind of stamped out COVID. Rob Subaraman, thanks for joining us today on the Low Style Podcast. Really appreciate that. You're welcome, Mike. Good to be on. Earlier in this podcast, we heard a lot about the challenges facing shippers, downward pressure on freight rates and what's going to happen in the months ahead. But there is one piece missing from this complex logistics jigsaw, and it's probably the most significant piece of all, and that's the role of container lines. What are carriers doing to manage the current situation and how are they planning for the challenges ahead? Now, I thought I'd ask someone at the grindstone of liner operations, who was also one of the first ever guests on the Lodestar podcast. Now, he can't speak for all carriers, of course, but he can speak for one of the big two carriers. It's a welcome return for the head of Global Ocean Network at Maersk, Lars Mikael Jensen. Uh, welcome to the Lodestar podcast once more. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me back, Mike. Lars, we discussed last year how Maersk was trying to untangle service networks in the face of strong demand and multiple disruptions, including the blockades of the Suez Canal by the Ever Given. Now, a year on, we have a raft of different challenges. Let's start with China, if I may. Can you tell us how these COVID lockdowns in China have been affecting your operations this past month or more? Well, it's been, uh, it's been affecting me and other people that we work long hours, but uh, in terms of the business, I'd say that Different from the, I go back to 2020 when we first had the COVID uh, outbreaks and it started in China. At that time, you would say port operation was locked and closed and so on. We've had that earlier as well. But the approach this time around has really been that the terminals and the ports have been open and they have been working. So from that perspective, we haven't really had any challenges in this. It has more been on the land side where you can say factories have been closed. Uh, there's been truckers who were quarantined and at home. So it's been a challenge on getting containers to and from the terminals more than the terminal operation itself. So the result of that has been that we have seen less volumes coming out of Shanghai. 
But then, uh, it, not because there was no cargo, but simply because it couldn't get either produced, packed, or to and from the port. Instead, what we have then seen is that in the port of Ningbo, as an example, then the number of empty containers that were picked up has increased. So some of those shippers, I guess, that couldn't get their cargo to and from Shanghai, then then say, okay, let me get a box in uh, an empty in, in Ningbo. I'll drive it to Nanjing or wherever I am. I'll do my production and then I'll ship out via Ningbo rather than Shanghai, although Shanghai is my preferred. But net, there's been clearly a reduction in the volumes uh, out of China. It has helped it a bit then to be able to accommodate some of the demands that we've had in Southeast Asia. So, you know, I want to say you lose some, you win some, but net there's been less to, to be shipped out of, uh, out of Asia. And then we've really used that as the opportunity when we've had ships that came from Europe where they got delays, then we're saying, okay, maybe in this week, we'll just skip one sailing because the cargo is not there in Shanghai. And then we've used that to basically reset the schedule. So these are some of the things that we do to basically juggle schedules back uh, on track when they get delayed somewhere else. So in summary, overall, from a port operation perspective, COVID in China has been, it's not been a non-event, but it's been something that was manageable. Maybe if I may, just one thing more, I'm sorry to drag this out. It has also, one thing is exports, another thing is also imports, because you also need the truckers to take the boxes out of the terminal and then in. That has become a challenge on reefers because, you know, you only have a certain amount of reefer plugs uh, in the terminal. So we have had for a shorter period to suspend further acceptance of reefers into Shanghai because we needed the flow of import containers to come back to normal. But we're seeing that coming back to normal. So we're gradually reopening that reefer acceptance. Otherwise, we wouldn't have anywhere to put a reefer container in Shanghai and a reefer container that is not plugged into a I want to say to, to some power, doesn't do well for the uh, content of the container. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that import trade because we did hear earlier about what impact these lockdowns are having on the intra-Asia trade, but particularly how manufacturers are sometimes struggling to get the inputs that they need to put together their uh, the final product ready for export. But I suppose that's uh, equally true in reverse, isn't it, Lars? One of the things that our guys in Asia are saying is that Okay, the lockdown in China is also, or in Shanghai, is also reducing the number of, honestly, semi-produced products that normally go from Shanghai to Southeast Asia to be put into a television or whatever it is that they uh, produce in Vietnam. But if that flow is not there, then maybe you can say we'll get a Southeast Asia impact later because right now they've had the components and they've had all the parts to continue to run full speed. But if they lack a month of supply from China, then, you know, is that going to have an effect? Interesting, Lars. And, and I think that's, uh, that's something that Lowstar.com will be, will be watching very closely. One of the other things, of course, that we, we watch closely is schedule reliability, which is something that forwarders and shippers complain about constantly when we're talking to them. Global schedule reliability in March, according to Sea Intelligence, was just... 35.9%, which was slightly below the same month in 2021. Now, just for our listeners, uh, many of them are your customers, may have been having these big Q1 profits along with many other people in the industry. For your customers looking at those numbers, is there anything you can say to reassure them on service reliability levels? For example, is this lack of cargo out of China, is it helping you and your 2M partner MSC untangle those schedules by getting ships and equipment back in place via blank sailings you just referenced there? And, and does this mean we'll see improved reliability later in the year, perhaps? I certainly hope so. But um, I think the, the point here is that the scheduled reliability at the moment is not really impacted by China. Yes, there is some seasonal weather where port is closed and so on, but it's not our biggest challenge. The challenge is that when the ships, they hit Europe, North Europe in particular, but also some places in the Met, as well as both US East Coast and US West Coast. That's where the delays occur. So you can say you can get out, and we've had a number of ships that have gone out of Asia, you can say all on schedule and on time. Then they hit one of the troubled ports in North Europe, and then they get delayed, and that then becomes the ripple effect that when you then return to Asia, you return to Asia late. And, and then it's not a, you know, I use the word blank sailings, but it's essentially a missed sailing because the ship is not back in time. So the 
the real or the full reliability, and I'm not comparing with last year because last year was poor. 20 was poor because of the disruptions. We got to compare back to the levels of 19. That's where we need to get back to. We need, I'm going to say, solutions. We need situation scenarios in Europe and in North America that is returning to normal. So we need the landside operation in Europe, the availability of workers, of truckers in Europe and in North America and so on. They need to increase in order for us to get back because right now we see that not all of the loops, but a number of the loops, most of the loops that hit Europe or that hit North America, they will then have a late return to Asia. So you can say you can put in extra ships, you can take ports out of a schedule to reduce the rotation. If the waiting time in the port of Rotterdam, and I'm just taking Rotterdam as an example, I'm not picking specifically on Rotterdam. Uh, if the waiting time there is six days, then it doesn't matter whether you arrive on a tight schedule or on a, on a say, longer schedule, you'll wait for six days and that will have an eventual effect. So getting back to reliability, full reliability for the industry depends on the landside operation in North America and in, uh, and in Europe. And that is everything from the terminals to the trucks, to the warehouses, to the distribution. Just looking at those congestion hotspots, where else in Europe is it? Is it just Northern Europe that you're being affected? And you said six days there for Rotterdam as an example, but is six days what we're talking about? And where's worst in North America? I mean, the Rotterdam example was just as an example for the, for the sake of it. I mean, earlier I have, uh, as I mentioned, Felix though has a problem. Right now, Felix though is okay-ish. Rotterdam is challenged. Then in two months time, maybe Bremerhaven is challenged and Antwerp is challenged. So it moves around. And the same in North America. I'll give you an example. In December, end of the year, Savannah, super congested, 20 ships on average waiting. What did lines do? They said, okay, let's skip Savannah from some of our schedules and let's call Charleston instead because Charleston doesn't have a problem. What do you think happened two months ago? Well, all of a sudden the delays were in Charleston and Savannah was actually cleared and looking good and New York was looking good. Then people were saying, okay, maybe I'll move the ship to Newark. Guess what you're seeing at the moment? Some birthing delays in Europe. So fundamentally, this is about, what can I say, again, the terminal structure, the terminal capacity, the facilities on the land side can't absorb the volumes that are moving. And the minute that you then have, you know, say some impact from COVID and, and so on, then it's a vicious circle and, and, and it's super hard to catch up. U.S. West Coast, yes, Los Angeles and Long Beach is getting better. There is no doubt, but you still may have 20 days later birthing than what you had actually in your planned schedule to do. Some of that time we use today to slow steam from Asia because you get your queue or you get your number in the queue when you leave Asia. And instead of going full speed in order to get a birth early, then if you know when you can birth, you can sort of like go slow steam and then do something good for the environment. But in P&W, as an example, a couple of months ago, also Seattle was a big, I'm going to say, a big, uh, I want to say, challenge area. The latest report that I got last week was saying, now we only have a few days of waiting time in Seattle, but then Vancouver is up to four weeks. So the thing here is that this moves around when there is a bottlenecks and also then the minute there is a port that works, then you can say, we all try to say, okay, let me make use of that. And then all of a sudden that can get, uh, I'm going to say, exacerbated. In Europe, there's also problems in the Adriatic, there's problems in East Med and so on. So, you know, it's really hard to say, we solve this problem and then everything is good. I think what this is showing us is that even though a, I want to say a congestion or a delay is very local, it very quickly has a global effect because an ocean network is, you could say it is global. So, I mean, you cough in, uh, in Europe and you get a cold in New Zealand kind of thing. And, and you can't, you know, it, it's super hard then to catch up and you keep on pushing those delays in, uh, in front of you. Lars, uh, you mentioned that congestion in Northern Europe there. Has, has this been exacerbated a little bit by the new sanctions regimes and the need to cut out Russian port calls to a degree, has that complicated things up, up in the Northern Europe in terms of rotations and services? It hasn't helped for sure. Uh, so what we saw, and I'm sure others saw, was that when the whole uh, war started, everything for Russia was stopped. Customs needed to inspect in order to say, can it go or is it not allowed to go? It was something about dual purpose goods that you could not be allowed simply to ship in. So customs wouldn't release it for 
you know, allow you to load to a feeder into uh, into Russia. So a lot of boxes for Russia has been packed at continental ports. Some of them, a lot of them has now basically by customers been said, okay, instead of sending it to St. Pete, I actually like to use it in my factory in France instead. So some of it has been moved around. As Maersk, we have moved some of the boxes that have not been released for Russia by the authorities. We moved them to a terminal in Denmark, Kalambor, that APNT has, that has some storage facility. But generally, as I understand it, part of the terminals on the Northwest continent is now basically used to store or stack some of those uh, containers that are meant for Russia. You know, they will be step-by-step emptied and shipped somewhere else or, or whatever, but it's taken up part of the terminal capacity. So that's one side of the North Europe uh, challenge. The other side is also that generally it takes longer for importers to take delivery of the container. We talk about a dwell time of an import container that maybe on average stay in the port full for four or five days in normal. Some will go out the same day, others will wait a week. But now when you see that it takes longer for the importers to take the delivery, either because they don't have the trucks, because they are stuck in their distribution facilities, or simply they don't need the cargo because they have some supplies that they need to use first. When that dwell time increases just with one day, just with one day, it basically means that what we call a yard utilization increases. And when the yard utilization is up, yard density it's called, then it takes longer to get to the, you can say, to the individual box. It's like when you move a house and you have 200 boxes of your, I to say, your pots and pans and, and whatever it is, and the moving guys, they put it all into the same room and they stack them four high and four wide and, and, and all of that. And you now need to equip your kitchen. And you find out that the box that you need with all your kitchen supplies is in the back row at the bottom. You then move all the other uh, moving boxes and then you get to it. Whereas if that box that you needed was standing right in the first row, right at the top, you would have been much faster. I, I hope that's, that, that, that gives some sense. Again, that is the challenge for a lot of the terminals that they need to dig out that box that an importer comes to, uh, to pick up. That ties in with what the, the terminals and various forwarders have told us on the Lodestar podcast as well. Thanks for that, Lars. Can I just go back to the US as well? Now, the, the latest uh, figures for the industry in general over the last year, there's been a plus 20% increase in the amount of capacity on those Trans-Pacific routes. But there's been a, a much bigger increase into the US East Coast year on year versus the US West Coast. Now, I don't know if that's driven by your customers or is driven by the liner logistics. Is this because, would you say, because customers are keen to avoid those delays on the West Coast? Or is these dock worker negotiations between the PMA and ILWU, uh, which could affect poor productivity, has in the past, is that a factor? A couple of things on this. Number one, shipping lines, or at least this shipping line, will go where the customers would want us to go. What we have seen over the last many years is a general shift of imports from the West Coast to the U.S. East Coast. Because there's been, and say the, the bottlenecks that we see on the West Coast, they may have been in the making for a period of time. Bigger retailers, bigger importers, they're saying, okay, let me do a distribution warehouse for the Eastern part of, uh, of the U.S. on the East Coast and not take everything in via the West Coast. So for the last many years that I can remember, and I've been involved in the Pacific trade for quite a number of years, that has been a shift there. So maybe we've had scenarios in years where there was, I'm just picking a number, 3% growth overall from Asia to North America. And that has been a 1% growth for West Coast and a 6% growth for East Coast. So I think if you go to back 10 years, maybe you saw the West Coast volumes being double the East Coast volumes. But over the years, that has, it's not a fully balanced, but it has balanced out. So, so I think it's a continuation of that that is the, the, the main thing customers are saying, all right, I want to get to that. And then probably also that early on in all this supply chain congestion challenges, West Coast showed problems before the East Coast. So I am sure a number of customers are saying, okay, I know it's challenged to get it into Los Angeles. Let me use the distribution warehouse that I have in Savannah to a larger extent. So I'll ask for more capacity into, uh, into U.S. East Coast. Then in the current situation, obviously, when these channels have been established, 
then customers are saying, well, okay, maybe I don't take the risk of what will happen in the ILWU uh, negotiations, and they then try to put a little bit more into UC scope. But it's on existing services, and that is then why there is, you can say, the pressure on the, or one of the reasons why there's pressure on US uh, East Coast. But I would still make the point that the underlying reason is that general shift from West Coast routing to US East Coast routing that has taken place for years. Uh, I want to come to the, the peak season just to finish up in a moment, but let me just give you a scenario, and we'll go back to China for this. Let's say... Shanghai opens or or maybe lockdowns end next week or next month, take your pick. What happens then? Will we see a huge surge in demand, clear cargo backlogs, or are you sensing that maybe with inflation, the cost of living crisis in import markets, that maybe demand is curtailed somewhat? Is it? Have you got any clear insight on those balancing factors? That's where you need a crystal ball and you need a good one. And, uh, if I knew the answer to that, I would set myself up as a private advisor and make a lot of money. No, I mean, what it depends a lot. And I'm sorry to say that because it's super hard to say. There is no doubt that you see some of the cargo that has not been shipped. And what we're hearing, the majority of that is not being canceled. It is shipments that are being postponed to whenever the production is made. So it's not like purchase orders, generally speaking, are being canceled purchase orders for what has not been produced and not been shipped. The thing that we don't know is whether, so we assume that it, that it will be produced and it will need to be shipped. Now, whether those purchase orders then will eventually replace some that were meant to be placed for July and August, you can say only time will tell. If the planned purchase orders for July and August will not be canceled and there is a backlog to clear, then there's going to be uh, then there's going to be on a say a super tight uh, supply and demand situation, but if not, then you can say it may come out uh, on a say more balanced because it's just postponing and then other things are cancelled. So it's simply too early to tell, and and it's a better question probably to put uh, to some of the shippers that you are speaking to in this broadcast what they expect. We speak to customers at the moment and they don't they don't know. As we've said in the uh, quarter one result that was just uh, released, I believe yesterday actually, and Sanskor was uh, uh, giving various comments on that, is that that we do see a normalization of both the operational environment as well as you can say the market uh, situation during the second half. Now, is that going to be on the 4th of July or it's going to be on the 4th of August, on the 4th of September? You know, it's super hard to say, but we do expect that we'll see that. So I won't make any predictions of, of when and how. It all depends, I think, at the end of the day on, you can say, for Europe, consumer spending and uh, and so on. And quite frankly, there you probably better listen to economists than you than you listen to me because I have no clue what's going to happen in September. Okay, so so we may see a peak season. We may see an early peak season. We could see a post-opening of lockdown surge. It's impossible to tell. I mean, it strikes me, Lars, a little bit that almost this year could end up looking more like a traditional year. So we've got a Chinese New Year peak, yeah. slightly lull, lull in the second half, and then possibly building to a peak season. But all of this is happening against the landscape of disruption with rates still at really high levels, record levels almost, but even though they've come down slightly, is that, is that how you see it? I mean, there's a lot of moving parts there. There's so many moving parts and, and I'm going to give you, honestly, a politician's answer on this here is that, you know, it all depends. I, I think, as we've said with our Q1 uh, results, that we do see a normalization happening in the second half. It depends a lot on the to say the underlying economy in the US and in the and Europe, that's going to be the the deciding factor. So, but if we all continue to go down to the uh, department stores and buy stuff as we have done for the last, or purchase them on the net as we've done for the last two years, it will continue to be tight and it will continue to be, uh, I'm to say, a volume boom. But if we stop doing that, then it's then it's different. The world will normalize at some point in time, and the odds that it will happen at some point in time in the second half or during the third quarter is uh, is re- is reasonably high, but that's as close as you get me to to comment uh, on on when things will be normal because I simply don't know. Stop buying products, buy more holidays. No, no, buy products. I like products. <laughs> 
Lars Mikael Jensen, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot. A big thank you to Ascent, the sponsors of this podcast. A shout out to TAC Index, a Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews, and most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon. 